Guess what? What? You're an author. Oh, my God. You're right. You wrote a book. I did write a book. And it's called Stop Blaming Mothers and Ignoring Fathers, How to Transform the Way We Keep Children Safe from Domestic Violence. Right. And it's available on Amazon, Amazon. Kindle. It's softcover. It's hardcover. Yeah. And it's a book that lays out six myths that really dive into these gaps in the field that the safety of the models is meant to fix or transform. Mm-hmm. It talks about gender double standards. It has interviews with practitioners and, and survivors. survivors and practical things you can do. But it really kind of is it's good for anybody who knows the model or is new to the model. And uh, I'm really excited about it. It only took two and a half years to do. Okay. Well, go get the book on Amazon.com. And we're back. And we're back. Oh, wow. This has been a little bit of a break. I can't even speak a little bit of a break that we've taken. We haven't exactly taken a break. We're working very hard over here. That's true. You are (laughs) listening to Partner with a Survivor. And I am David Mandel, Executive Director of the Safe and Together Institute. And I'm Ruth Stearns Mandel. And I'm the e-learning communications and strategic relationship manager. And uh, we are um, not quite finished with our worker safety mini-sode series we'll be picking that up again so if you're kind of following that along there's two more there's coming. two more mini sods coming right. yeah. but we're we're actually really um uh i always say super excited i was trying not to say that today <laughs> i was trying not to say that today but we're really super excited and that is that's sort of the yeah, thing actually, people exciting. notice but um we've got two interviews we're doing this week yeah. both with men yeah about their work with men and, mm-hmm. and just to this idea of, of um, you know, speaking to men's roles, working against uh, gender-based violence. And, yeah. um, and and that's obviously, you know, deeply important to me. Yeah. Um, well, I think that, you know, one of the reasons that this was an important episode uh, for us is that we know that unless we address men and their choices around violence and control, that we will never truly stop violence against women. All of our systems have been created to be reactive to violence, including including systems that we necessarily need um, and need the support of, like refuges and and law enforcement. But they've all been created to be reactive to violence. And we don't want to continuously be reactive to violence. So it's important for us to hear about how to engage men. And I, you know, before we introduce Graham, because we haven't even mentioned Graham's name, we're going to be talking to Graham Golden. Yes. But before we do that, you know, I tweeted something out this week and you commented on it. And if again, I don't talk about, I actually have a Twitter feed that you've encouraged me to use. Yes. yes. And it's at David G. Mandel. I don't think I've ever said that on the show. That's pretty funny. Isn't that funny? You know, and, um, but I tweeted something out this week, which was about an interaction that was related to me mm-hmm. where, um, there was a multidisciplinary team meeting. Uh, they were talking about there's there for high risk issues, you know, around domestic abuse. And um, somebody presented a lot of detail around the perpetrator's pattern. And somebody else who was, you know, facilitating and chairing the meeting said, oh, we don't need that. This inf- we don't need this information about the perpetrator's pattern. This meeting is about the victim safety. Well, how did you, how <laughs> and, did you and, define and, and, safety without and, that knowledge? And, and so to me, it was kind of a classic, and, yeah. and, and you you commented on it, yeah. but about the craziness of that, which yeah. is sort of the invisibility of, of, of perpetrators, but invisibility of men and men's roles yeah. and men's responsibilities yeah. it is so obvious in that. And this is a system-wide issue, and it's, and it, and it's a it's an issue related to, to high-risk cases. And so people are thinking, oh, I can actually do the work with survivors and ignore the people actually doing the abuse. Right. So, well, and so we, we're not going to do the whole podcast right now. With that no, so no, but I just want to give that. I want to give yeah, that. I want to give that. So let's talk about yeah. Graham's bio here. Graham Golden uh, is a former Scottish National Police officer, and um, he has his own organization, and I believe it's called Graham. What's the name of the organization again? Cultivating Minds UK. Is that correct? Yeah. And he developed a program 
to create a much needed conversation around issues uh, that can impact negatively on learning, on businesses, sports, and individuals around violence. And it's an active bystander program. Um, and it's concrete. He actually has strategies that people can use to intervene and engage individuals who are who are choosing violence in different contexts. So, so Graham, I just wanted to say thank you for coming on. Um, And I'm going to let you give a little bit more detailed bio because I was having a hard time navigating my paper over here. But thank you for coming on. Yeah, thank you, Graham. It's a pleasure. And that's such an American term. Super excited, David. (laughs) (laughs) Only when I I go to the US do I hear super excited. But hey, listen, Mm -hmm. I'm super excited to be with you guys today. (laughs) Thank you. And have the the conversation. And you did really well there, Ruth, around my my, my background. Yeah, I spent 30 years in policing um, in Scotland. um, And the last nine years of policing, I was a chief inspector working with the Scottish Violence Reduction Unit. And I suppose in those, those last nine years that I really started to, to, to look at violence prevention, not just for the short term, but for the long term. And that's when I became really passionate and engaged you know, around the bystander. Now, you are working actively now, not with the police in Scotland, but you're working with individuals, organizations, and also doing some law enforcement work here in the United States. Can you kind of break down those buckets, you know, what you're doing in those areas yeah, you know, all my work stems, I think, stems from my time in the police, the police service. You know, you know, from day one, I would often interview witnesses, bystanders, people mm-hmm. who'd seen things, heard things. And, you know, they would often say things like, you know, to me, like, you know, I knew something was going to happen. I could tell this wasn't going to end well. And that, and that would include times when friends were, you know, about to be a victim or a friend was about to, to, to be a harm doer, a perpetrator. Um, and I, I used to get really frustrated Um at, at you know at these individuals thinking why did you not speak up why did you not do something and um, it was in those last years of policing working looking at violence prevention that I I started to see the potential for us not just to tell people to, to step up to help people step up right um, because I think it's really it's really important we just expect people who see things to do things you know we we have that phrase if you see something say something and I think we need to help people break that down um, so I. I left policing um, in 2017. I retired from policing and I just set up myself as a, a consultant trainer and I work in, in workplaces, tackling harassment and bullying. I work in schools and universities, tackling domestic abuse, sexual violence prevention. I've worked in prisons, you know, you know, engaging men in conversations around violence, not just violence against women and girls, but men's violence against men, men's violence against themselves. It's mm-hmm. all, you know, I think there's, there's big linkages there, there that we can make. Um, but always using this bystander approach. And what I like about the bystander approach is it just allows me to invite people, especially men, into a conversation. You know, often boys and men are looked at as problems or potential problems, especially when it comes to things like domestic abuse or sexual violence. And we know from past research that that can sometimes just switch people off. It can cause pushback, and we've seen a lot of that in in the last few years. Whereas the bystander approach that I was taught by the, the, the U.S. Um, advocate, Dr. Jackson Katz, really gave me a, a tool to go into all of these different settings to engage um, all these different communities. Because one thing I really believe in is the power of community. You know, prevention starts in a community. And by a community, I mean a workplace, a sports team, um, a school, a university. It could be a village. It could be a town. It could be a city. Right, right. So it's, it's thinking about that. Yeah, we often think about the need to intervene in potentially uh, violent or abusive behavioral situations as the police need to intervene or a professional needs to intervene. And those situations are incredibly scary. And there's a lot of adrenaline running through your body. And, and of course, law enforcement is trained how to manage that, you know, in certain situations, but civilians are not. And giving people those concrete tools and concrete behaviors that they can engage in on scripts around how to engage somebody who's either perpetrating that violence or experiencing violence is incredibly important to making people comfortable because we don't know what to do. And, and the brain naturally switches off in those moments when we're most needed to, to truly intervene. Um, so can you tell us some of the ways that you're doing that? How are you, how are you doing that with your trainings? 
No, so here's the thing, you know, the, the, the bystander toolkit that I that I discuss is inside our head all the time. It's there. We have it. But what, what we and you, you pointed out there that when you witness a challenging situation, your 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 brain starts to compensate. Your, your, I think it's your amygdala gets hijacked. They call it they call it the amygdala hijack. Adrenaline goes there. And you know, one thing you know we teach. Um, and when I was taught at the law enforcement, was it's just to take a step. You know, a sort of step back, deep breath. And when you, and when you do that, you start to put more oxygen back into your brain, so you can start to make decisions. But let, let's face it, you know. Policing has struggled this year to engage, and maybe we'll talk about that as we go through this this conversation. But for me, you know, every one of us has the potential to make a difference. So I always start with that conversation. You know, everybody in this in this in, in the unit, United States, here in Scotland, have the potential to make a difference. Often, you know, movements start with one person. It's the same with bystanders. And um, what we can do is, in, in my work as well, I spend a lot of time talking about why people don't act. Because when you start to make that visible for people, especially, say, for example, in group settings, you know, we talk about the bystander effect, mm-hmm. um, you know, in group settings, we're very susceptible to not intervening because nobody else is. So simply by being aware of that and, you know, there's a, there's a, a, a bit of research from the 1960s, John Daly and Bib Latini from America did some, some research which looked at group situations and they, they, they just identified that the bigger the group, the less likely you'll, you'll speak up. The social science suggests that even simply being aware of that helps you overcome it when you see mm-hmm. it for real. Um, but there's lots of other inhibitors we need to talk about, you know, apathy, a lack of tools. It's not my business, um, you know. But I also think we need to not just simply look at stranger situations where we have that physical fear, you know, that, you know, if you see two people you don't know fighting on the street or or something's happening and you don't know these people, we have that 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 sense that, you know, if I step in, I could get physically hurt. But I, I focus a lot of my work around friendship groups, known peer groups. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think, you know, I don't fear my best friends punching me in the face if I ch- challenge their behavior. But mm-hmm. as a young man, I would fear being, you know, socially isolated from, you know, from peer group, you know, being mm-hmm. ridiculed, um, you know, being challenged and potentially losing friends. Like lots of young people, they fear losing friends. And one thing I've learned recently is that the part of the brain that lights up when you physically hurt yourself also lights up when you are in these situations where your friends are involved. And if you if you step in, you fear losing friends. And that's painful. So it actually shows up in a, in a, a CAT scan or whatever it is as, as, a, as a pain moment for that individual. Right, right. So for me, I spend a lot of my time speaking about why people don't act and presenting lots of evidence, lots of films, so that, you know, because in many ways, if we can make the invisible visible, then people can't unsee it. So yeah. when things happen for real, um, you know, they can do it. And then we put, uh, put them into realistic you know, um, scenarios where we press the pause button. And we, we, you know, we, we talk about what's going on in the scenario. I might, you know, throw in some awareness around domestic abuse or sexual violence or hate crime. And then we, we then discuss what we can do. And, and you, know, some, you know, some strategies that we can all do, we can intervene directly. We can speak to people. Hey, stop that. Or if it's a friend, hey, I'm your friend. You know, I respect you enough to tell you this. I think that's wrong what you're doing. You know, we can, we can create distractions and disruptions. We can change the subject. We can take our friends away from a situation. We can engage our allies. I think key for bystanders is finding friends. Right. And you know, and, and let's face it, there is more good in the world than bad. So yeah. most people, when they see situations that, that, that we, we come up like you know, violence and abuse, most people are you know, you know they're dead against it. They don't like it. But unless they see people speaking up, they're more likely to, to you know to, to sort of walk away. So helping them find a friend is important. And lastly, defer to, to other people. So you, you know, speak to the police, you know, speak to the, the high school teacher, speak to your know, manager. And I think one thing that bystanders often think is that they have to intervene at the time. And yet earliest is better, but better late than never. You can still intervene after a situation has taken place simply by saying, you know, hey, I saw what happened to you. That wasn't your fault. And evidence says that that can actually lead to a more fulfilling life in a school, in a workplace. Simply being active after the event can make a difference. Right. It's it's great to hear about this. It, it, I think for our listeners, what I, I want them to think about is, is, you know, you're putting, you know, if we're talking about male violence against other men, male violence against, against women and, and girls, that we're putting uh, those 
people who are who are using violence back in the context of their networks. I think we tend to see them as isolated. We, we use language. They're an offender. They're a perpetrator. You know, and, and we I don't think we've got a really well-developed sensibility at times to say, who is he close to? Who who knows him? Who is mm-hmm. who 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 supports them in being a better person? Who's actually facilitating his violence? Because I I did men's behavior change work for years, and and always I think about these these two men I work with. So, you know, the stories are side by side. One was a a man who went over and assaulted his ex wife, and his brother drove him there. You know, and 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 facilitated right. So that's one example. But then I have another uh, guy that I work with quite a bit. Who, who I remember the guy's name, the guy's name, his friend was Al. And Al would stop him, literally, physically from going over, this is a different guy, from going over his ex-wife and say, it's not worth it, don't go, you know. And and he was a physical intervener mm-hmm. with his friend. And 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 for me, that was, it was, uh, you know, you read sometimes, you read news stories about domestic violence, homicides, or other things, and these guys are often not put into context. Mm-hmm. You'll hear about she went to her mom's or she went to her sister's or the police came and responded to her. And there's a lot of contextualizing and often very blaming. And she didn't go back to refuge when she could have, or she came back from the refuge, very subtle or not subtle blaming, but he's kind of exists in this vacuum. And I love that you're putting, you're putting these, these folks in our communities who are choosing violence back into connection and the way you talk about it. And, And we need to be connected to how we, the reality is we are connected to people who have been abused and people who have been abusive, all of us in some way, shape or form. And as a society above and beyond arrest and incarceration, we have to be able to have strategies to hold each other accountable so that we can have those connections, those safe connections. And we have often fostered an attitude especially around intimate partner violence and male violence, that it's too dangerous to have that conversation, that people should not be doing it for their own safety. And so we have given them carte blanche to do nothing, to say nothing. Instead of giving them tools, respecting the reality that people live and love and work with and are friends with these people who are perpetrating violence so, you know, the, like our, for our approach, the choose to change guide, the ally guide fit into that active bystander, creating networks of support for good behaviors yeah. and accountability for behaviors which are destructive. Yeah. So we think, really like that approach, Graham. Yeah. yeah. I think it's really important because if all we're doing is teaching people to intervene at the point of an incident involving strangers, we're basically playing whack-a-mole. That's all we're doing. You know, we're not, and we need to reduce the moles. And I think one of the, you know, one of the first campaigns in the US that that really brought in peers was the drink driving. Friends don't let friends drive drunk. Right. And I, you know, I'd like to see more of that. You know, friends don't let friends sexually harass women. Friends don't let friends, you know, that that example you gave there, David, about a friend who didn't take their friend to the ex-wife's house. You know, a friend is being a good friend by stopping that person from doing something that could not only harm the victim, but could ultimately harm that, you know, that, that person could be arrested, charged, whatever. So there's, you know, and, and I think, you know, violence will, will see big reductions in violence and abuse is, is when friends learn, learn to hold other friends accountable. And you're right there, Ruth. It's we off, you know, where do we intervene? Do we wait for the, you know, the punch, the kick to happen? Or do we wait, you know, or do we intervene with the words and language right. and the attitudes? And that's mm-hmm. where my work, you know, focuses on. It's about, you know, every single day I encourage men to to you know role model verbal physical emotional respect in their workplaces and their and their sports teams out with their friends you know because you know we, we need to create cultures of of non-violence cultures of non-abuse and we don't do that by simply intervening at the time of an incident because right. it's too late then yeah well you were recently involved in the um the scottish national police campaign weren't you you want to talk about that campaign because i loved that campaign i thought it was Brilliant. And I have to say this big kudos to the Scottish National Police, because this is this is innovation. This is cutting edge stuff. This is really, really good. So big yeah. thumbs up. All the fingers like just yes, I love it. So go ahead and talk about it. Yeah. So we had a horrific incident back in 2000, March this year when a young lady Sarah Everard was was murdered by a police officer. And maybe we'll talk about that as we go through. And and you know, I was I was on Scottish television speaking about um, 
the incident. And I remember there was a, a, a there was a segment on the television program before I spoke, and I remember this young lady saying something like, "You know, I'm scared of men. I'm scared of men." And um, I, I can remember sort of scribbling a little note in my book. You know, I, I need to say that when I'm on, on television. And I started off by saying, "You know, we just heard from a young lady who's scared of men." And I just said, guys, how do you feel about that? How do, how do you feel that we have women in 2021 in Scotland who are scared of us? And I said, you know, that won't change until we do more and we speak up. And I, I started talking about, you know, I'm a, I'm a big believer in sweating the small stuff. You know, if we've heard that phrase, don't sweat the small stuff. And that, you know, um, you know when it comes to violence and abuse, I'm, I'm not saying words and language is small because we know it's not. You know, verbal abuse, emotional abuse is terrifying for people. But society seems to minimise words and language, um, especially if it's online as well. We, t- we tend to minimise that. So I said, you know, we need to make a connection between words, language, attitudes, and what happened to Sarah Everard. Because, you know, physical violence, murder, kidnapping doesn't just happen. It has right. to start somewhere. Right. So, and he was actively called the rapist by his colleagues. So they yeah. were aware of his 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 violence. Yeah. 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 It, was his, it was his it was his attitudes that I believe led to these nicknames being given to the officer. And I remember a few weeks after that, I got a phone call from a, 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 a colleague who works in the corporate communications department in Police Scotland. And he said, Graham, we liked what you said. You joined up some of the dots for us. Would you want to work together on a campaign? So I said, mm-hmm. yeah, who wouldn't want to do this? So. We just we just sat down, we we talked about, you know, because in the past, policing has tended to look at men as the problem. And, you know, that's when you get the pushback. That and evidence says the pushback's gonna come. And we we still so we saw that after Sarah Everard um case, that not all men hashtag. Um so what we what we came up with was this idea of asking men to self-inspect their value their, their behaviors and attitudes, but then with this new lens, how can you use your your role, your as a father, as a as a as a as a sports coach, as a teacher, as a friend, male friend? How can you use your status as a leader in many ways to try and prevent these issues? And the sixty second film that you know, hopefully you'll post a link when we we put this out. You know, the the, the sixty second film, the first ten seconds focuses on where all men have been. You know, you know, laughing at jokes. You know, um, even even telling jokes. Um, but after the after that, those first ten seconds, we then move into active actions of abuse. You know, getting a girl drunk. You know, and and using that to you know to, to have sex with her. And and most men don't get to that part, but right. a lot of right. us are silent around that part. When we see our friends, you know, behaving in certain ways, we're we're we have that social fear. And again, going back to what I said at the start, we need to help men overcome not so much this physical fear. It's the, it's, it's, it's the social fear that is really, really telling in these situations. So that you know that that, that film just asks men, please, you know, please, go, you know, you know, come on board, you know. And I think after the Sarah Everard case, we just read the room. In the police Scotland read the room really well, and we, that, that's been I think it's been viewed four or five million times globally. I've had men reach out to me saying, "Graham, thank you for that. You've just you know that that campaign just allowed allowed me to escape." The, the sort of shackles of of masculinity that that I've been living with, you know, for you know for for, for you know for many years, um, right. and the feedback we got from you know women's organisations, yeah, well done, more please. Yes, it was wonderful. Right, and and that campaign is called what again? I don't know if you gave us the title. It's don't be that guy. Okay, mm-hmm. don't be that guy. And yeah. there's a whole, there's a a whole very website. American word, by the way. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Surprised yeah, exactly. you didn't choose bloke, bloke, by the way. Right. Yeah, you didn't That's say bloke. English. That's <laughs> very English. Yeah. yeah. So I want to, you know, you kind of pointed to it a couple of times, and, and I, I want to pick up on the thread because we're talking about Sarah Everhard, and we're talking about the police culture, you know, where where there was this kind of common knowledge about his attitude, and, and you know, you know, you know, and that just uh, that just is so painful to hear, right? You know, to hear that this wasn't just attitudes, and it wasn't just the acceptance of this. This were behaviors, and and just, but but you you know about our work around officer-involved domestic violence, and our you know, and and so it's it's hard for me not to think about that in this context. And I believe you've done some work in that space where you you know because what we've heard, you know, what we know about is that those officers who are committing domestic abuse against the family members are often difficult officers on the street. Yeah. They're different, difficult officers as colleagues. 
They're, they can be harassing of their peers. They can be bullying of their peers. Yeah. And so this is the um, domestic abuse by officers is not only a public safety issue. It's not only a family issue for the family victims, but it's a police culture workplace issue as well. So can you speak to your work at that that kind of intersection? We'll be back after a quick break. Before you listen to this great episode of Partner with Survivor, we'd just like to tell you about a powerful new practice tool the Safe and Together Institute has launched. Our perpetrator pattern mapping tool has been available for 10 years, but now it's available for the first time in a web-based version. What it does is really help you map perpetrators' patterns of behavior onto child family functioning, talk about its intersections with mental health, substance abuse, and other issues, address intersectionalities, worker safety, all in an easy-to-use online package that protects the confidentiality of your information and lets you wrap it all up in a neat little package, basically, to print it out and to kind of document all those different pieces of information. This is a tool that can be used by both survivors and practitioners. And for the very first time, it's available immediately online without any other prior training. The training is embedded in this powerful practice tool so that teams uh, that have not been trained in Safe and Together can immediately begin mapping in an effective way. That's right. It's like having a Safe and Together coach in your back pocket is what I like to say. There you go. So we really encourage you to go to our virtual academy, academy academy.safetytotherinstitute.com. Check it out. You know, you can subscribe to it immediately or you can check out a free demo version for 30 days. So please reach out to us and try this new tool. Now enjoy this great episode of Partner with Survivor. Yeah, you know, every police officer, well, the, the vast majority of police officers would have really felt that moment when Wayne Cousins was was charged with the, with the murder. Same in the US when Derek Chauvin was charged and convicted of the, the, the George Floyd case. You know, I was taught in my early years in policing Every police officer is the face of the police service when they're, you know, when they're doing their, you know, day-to-day, you know, work. You know, you represent not just yourself, you represent the whole of the service. And, um, you know, and one thing, you know, one thing that came out from the Everard case and from the, the Derek Chauvin case as well is a sense of loyalty that, that we have. You know what, we need police officers to be loyal to each other. You know, we need them to be looking out for each other, supporting each other, but we need to develop a, a sense of critical loyalty where we tell our colleagues what they need to hear, not what they want to hear. And I think there's, there's, there's a lot of that going on. And I think within, within policing and like lots of other male-dominated cultures, we have that, you know, what, for example, if you look at the, the Derek Chauvin case, the George Floyd case, lots of us would be focusing on the racial tensions that were at play there. You know, there's, you know, there's, big, there's evidence around the Harvard Institute talks about masculinity contest cultures that exist in male, and I know, I know US policing is, it's trying to you know, increase male, you know, um, female officers within within law enforcement departments, um, and I think it's it's not it's this this work requires as you know rec- you know requires an intervention that looks not just at domestic abuse or sexual harassment or racism or homophobia. We need to make it relevant to everybody in the organisation um, and give them the tools because you know you know I read an article a couple of years ago which says that on any given day. 70% of police officers, sorry, sorry, 15% of police officers will come to work and do the right thing, no matter what. They'll do the right thing, stand up for what they believe in. And these are the moral rebels out there. 15% of officers will come and they're, and they're the, you know, they're the harm doers. I'm not a bad apples fan. I don't believe in bad apples. I think that suggests inevitability, you know. So there's 15% of officers will come to work and, and do bad things. The rest, yeah. you, know, you know, the rest, the 70%, they're susceptible to do nothing, join in with the poor behavior or we could actually influence them to do the right thing. So it's about giving them the tools and, and creating the conversations where they start to see that the vast majority of cops want to do the right thing. And I think so- it's, yeah, I, I love that, Graham. And I, I also think supporting them in holding those people accountable is super important because a lot of times what we see is that perpetrators, particularly ones that have tremendous power and control and influence, are capable of manipulating uh, policies or you know uh, you know practices that are already in place to create invisibility and impunity around them, but also that the workers 
who are trying to hold that person accountable are often not supported by their supervisors and managers and leadership. And that a bad apple theory is essentially putting responsibility on individuals rather than the organization, the entity who is supposed to be protecting the well-being of all of their workers and supposed to be supporting and fostering an environment that supports, uh, you know, law enforcement, peace, you know, protection, you know, all of those things. And that's that's not really what's happening right now. Like that's that's a real thing. And we know that across the board globally. So how do we how do we use this active bystander model to really push organizations to do their their diligence around their workers? Yeah. You know, we often talk about this top down approach that we need. You know, we need leadership to create the conditions for active bystandership. But we also need a, a bottom up approach where we give, you know, the, you know, the patrol officers, the police officers on the ground, the confidence and skills to do what's needed way before it becomes the big issue. You know, I'm, I'm convinced that if somebody had challenged Wayne Cousins 10, 5, 10, 15 years ago, say that Everard would still be alive today. I'm, I'm convinced by that because we know from research that violence and abuse will continue evolve to, into other sh- forms and shapes until we have interruption. So for me, that's the active bystander. And I think, I think it's really important, you know, in, in the US, for example, back in 2013, 14, after Hurricane Katrina, the New Orleans Police Department introduced EPIC, Ethical Policing is Courageous. And it was an active bystander program. And within a year, and it was, it was on the back of high levels of misconduct and policing in, in New Orleans and a, a, a falling in public trust um, with, you know, you know, with the police. And within a year, they actually increased trust and reduced misconduct. And what they said, the outcome of the, what they said, you know, you know, contributed to these the, the success was simply having the conversations within an organization allows the healthy norms to rise to the surface. Because if you don't have the conversations, people are left wondering, you know, do my friends think the same as me? And then harm doers are just left thinking, I can do what I want here. No one's going to challenge me. And then on the back of George Floyd, they, they created the active bystander and law enforcement program, the ABLE program. I think it's from, from Georgetown University. Um, and I'm one of the trainers that we, we train um, U.S. police departments around the U.S. to deliver, you know, trainings to officers. And it's really good. It's really powerful. It's, you know, it's not just focusing on misconduct. It focuses on mistakes and it focuses on mental health as well. It makes it relevant. And you can talk about um, sexism. You can talk about racism. You can talk about an officer who's struggling at home, you know, because it's relevant to everybody. And a question we ask is, you know, in your business, in your setting, and when we'll be asked this for anybody listening today, you know, in your business, in your setting, who is harmed when we fail to see active bystanders? You know, just leave that one hanging just there because that, that's relevant. You know, victims are harmed. Um, public confidence is harmed. Um, the whole organization can be poisoned by, you know, behaviors continuing. In, right. In that there. So for me, you know, there's lots we can be doing. Simply having the conversation that brings the bystander you know, you know, front and center, not pointing at them and saying you need to be doing more, but helping them. Right. Helping I really, them. I really feel that, and and I, I think about how um, our minds again say, you know, in a work situation, in a work setting where somebody's experiencing violence or harassment or sexual harassment, that a lot of the ways that we've thought about dealing with that is through a law enforcement lens, where we have been hesitant to step in unless somebody has been arrested and convicted of a crime. When in reality, we have every right as organizations, as employers, as coworkers to say, this person is harming my safety and my ability to do my job and is an impediment to the values and the mission of this organization. And they need to be dealt with these behaviors need to be dealt with because they're harming our ability and our cohesion of our teams. And that's not what's happened. So I think it's really good to give people the, the language around that, the, the steps that they can take that are not arrest or law enforcement involvement, but are cultural holding of accountability and saying these behaviors, these specific behaviors are unacceptable in our context. And let us help you to do better. And if you can't do better, 
then you are not in alignment with our values. And we have every right to ask you to leave our organization. And I don't think that that's happened culturally very well because of our focus on physical violence and also because of our focus on arrest and incarceration. But we can do this. It is it is it is absolutely possible to do it. You know, I'm, I'm thinking about as we're talking about all this, all the different scenarios, situations over the course of my life where I've actually chosen to actually intervene. And I'm thinking first on the street or then also in more intimate settings with people. And, you know, I can think of half a dozen times where actually I intervened in stranger situations where there was a violent assault going on and it was scary. And I felt compelled. And I think it's, that's what I'm kind of want to explore with you about this for a second. Based on my values, I felt like I couldn't stand by, you know, and, 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 you know, and these were, you know, somebody chasing his partner out of his house with a pipe. This was, you know, a campground where I heard, you know, somebody assaulting somebody. And there were, there was a lot of, um, you know, you use the term distraction, a lot of like getting somebody's attention away from targeting somebody. And so it wasn't, you know, even uh, uh, what you're doing is wrong. It's, hey, can I get your attention? Whatever that was. In the case I was saying, hey, I called the police. You better be careful. Stop what you're doing. And and it wasn't like I thought it was okay or sort of he should get away with it. And I hadn't called the police, but I was telling him, hey, you better, you you know, the the situation's changing. And, um, you know, and I'm just wondering again, sort of whether it's in the workplace or, you know, it's it's in these other settings, what you're really finding encourages that reflection and that step towards action. What, what are you finding through your work that, that really works in that direction? You know, a, a couple of things, you know, David, you just, you know, you're you're what we call in the business a moral rebel, right? You're, you're a person who, and, and we have moral rebels and we can learn loads from, you know, the, the think of the rescuers from the Holocaust. You know, what, what was it that allowed them to, to speak up and 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 put themselves at great in great danger. You think of um, civil rights activists, you know Martin Luther King and other great leaders in the 60s, 50s and sixties. Um, you know, and often it's good values, good you know good good upbringing, you know freedom to to, to have conversations with with the parents, you know parents not being so rigid in their views that you know and 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 and, and that can help you know because because one thing that we can all do to all of these experiences is all of these incidents you're talking about. Is bring our values, bring our attitudes, you know, bring our experiences to that precise moment. You know, for example, if you're if you're speaking to a, a survivor of domestic abuse, you know, you will know that simply saying to a survivor, hey, that wasn't your fault, you didn't deserve that, that can be really, really powerful. You know, and you can you can leave a trace of yourself when you say these things. So for me, it's about helping people, you know, one looking at all the research, all the evidence from decades ago around moral rebels, around why people don't act. The next big thing for me is finding friends, find, helping people find their friends, find their allies, because it's easier to intervene in a situation if you know you have an ally to help you. You know, hey, can you help me out? Evan Staub, the US psychologist, talks about, he did some research in the 70s, which I think it was the 70s, suggested that simply by saying to passive bystanders, hey, can you help me, will activate other people 100% of the time. So it's, hey, that, that's, that, no, that, that's, that's enough. Um, and lastly, empathy. Empathy is a big driver for active bystandership. And that's why I think it's important that we allow men especially to start off thinking about girls and women and women in their lives. Because, yeah, you, know, you can progress onto all women, as we know that. You know, I, I, I've been there. But I remember Jackson Katz asking me, you know, as, as a man, what are you doing to prevent violence? And I, no one, he asked me that in 2009, and no one had ever asked me that question before as a man. And he gave me the space. He allowed me to start thinking about, you know, my, you know, my, you know, my family. My, you know, I've got two adult daughters, and I started to think about their experiences and and seeing them, you know, both of them, and you know, have experienced some men's abuse at some stage in their life. I know that, um, and that's empathy. And I think empathy is a big driver for active bystandership. And if it gets men in the room, and it, you know, it it, it got me in the room, and I'm still here. You know, you know, and I see, I see that for all women now. You know that 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 sense of empathy. So I think empathy is important. Finding friends is important, but conversation is something that we don't have. We don't invest enough in our training. We'll do online trainings. We'll do lectures. We'll reinforce policies. Whatever that is, we need to 
for, we need to create the space for conversations because the, the answers to lots of my questions are already in the room. You know, most you know it's there. I'm just wondering if you've got any stories about um, men coming together to confront other men. So you, what's making me think about it is, but you know, reach out to somebody, have a friend, talk to somebody else about it. But I'm just wondering, you know, we think about interventions people do with alcoholics. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm just wondering if you if you have any stories about yeah. about groups of men, groups of of mates of somebody going and, and sort of talking amongst themselves first and saying, we've got to talk to John, we've got to talk to so and so. Yeah, you know, I came. I, I run a. I helped start a program up in Scotland called the Mentors and Violence Prevention Program. It's a US-based program, MVP program, and I've got loads of stories of young young men, 17, 18, who have started conversations in a locker room because that one of their friends was 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 talking was was being quite sexist, and he just like timed out and had a conversation about it. Um, I've had you know the the men's hockey team from the University of Edinburgh. You know, often men's sports get quite a bad, a bad reputation in university settings. You know, same in the US, same as here in, in the UK, in Scotland. Um, and the men's hockey team, you know, agreed to be a, a participant in the Don't Be That Guy campaign and really made a, a lovely film about their views on sexual entitlement, their views on 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 current issues that were going on. And, and that's why it's important that we that we, we encourage men to have these conversations with each other. You're right. You know, it, what, why wait for John to do something bad? Let's let's create a conversation as early as possible. Set the tone for the sports team, for the you know, for the school, for for whatever. But yeah, you know, I've had I've had men, you know, after training, come up to me and said, "Hey, I've got a friend who is, you know, being really abusive to his his wife. You know, very you know, very controlling." Um, and he said he said to me, "You know, my wife is is a, is a friend of the of the of the lady, the victim, and." Is, is is supporting her and I said right that's good okay so right what's what's he like in his friendship groups and he said he's a real controller I said well that's that's how you go here that's how you find ways to have a conversation with your other friends and challenge not so much challenging the abuse of his wife because that's dangerous for you know for you know for, for the victim survivor here but just you know have the courage the moral courage to have a conversation so yeah. and give people tips to be able to do these things I'm going to go there with the TV show Ted Lasso here for a second because you were talking about you're talking about uh, uh, sports clubs and and teams like that. I know you haven't seen the show because we talked about this before we started recording, but I want to just do a shout out for listeners um, if they haven't watched the show Ted Lasso. I'm not getting anything to endorse this. It's really it's we're not a, getting, yeah, this you know is, this isn't that that's not a no commercial for it. Yeah. But I, I do because I I see so few unfortunately positive. Um, media portrayals of men and sports and men in this way that Ted Lasso stands out because it's about an American football, American football um, coach. coach going to, to England to coach a, a sport. He knows nothing about soccer football. And which is ridiculous. It's ridiculous. And it yes. should be ridiculous, but, <laughs> but, but he brings this attitude about relationship about, he says, relationship is more important than winning. You know, he says, so he already kind of breaks it apart and he's, about helping people achieve their potential as human beings. And the show is about masculinity. The show is about fathers and sons, fathers um, abusing their sons, you know, putting pressure on them to succeed. It's about men supporting each other. I mean, it really is, and it's very conscious. And men supporting women. And tr- and creating a different culture, right. you know, that starts on the show right. very bullying in the locker room. And he, the coach, transforms it through his leadership. So anyway, just I, I couldn't resist because I'm so I'm so yeah, excited you know, about the show. I just I was kind of stuck on something that that you said, Graham, about about empathy. And it's interesting as a survivor, I had a little bit of a reaction to that because mm-hmm. I've I've actually never known anybody's empathy to give me any that gave me any functional support. People can feel empathy, but not know the steps to functionally support other people. And and around men and their violence, I would want them to have these conversations about male violence because male violence impacts them too. Because suicidality among men is super high because of their mental health issues. Because violence of men against boys and men and boys watching men be violent to other men and women and children is a damaging thing for men themselves. And 
I would want men to step into this conversation because I want men to be healthy because I want them to be connected to their loved ones in ways that are nourishing and meaningful to both that man and to the person they're in connection with. And because I think that men must feel a tremendous amount of shame walking around in a world where they know that so many people are afraid of them because of male violence. And they become defensive because of that. Um, But it is a reality and I would want men to be healthier. That's why I would would want them to step into these conversations around male violence, not just for women, but for men too. I I would agree. You know, um, you know, one thing I often ask in my trainings, if people are coming along as the professional, you know, I'll ask, you know, who's the moms and dads here? Who's the brothers and sisters? Who's the friends? Who's got friends? Because, you know, violence has the potential to be deeply personal to everybody in this room, everybody in every single room. It may already be deeply personal to people. And I think when you start to look at violence and abuse as something that could happen to you, a loved one, then you're, you're less likely to blame victims. You're also more likely to speak up and step up. You know, you, you talk about suicide. I lost, my, I lost my dad to suicide in 2009. And it was, you know, before that, I'd never really thought about men and suicide and masculinity as, as a contributing factor. And it was only post that that I started to join all the dots up and start to make, you know, when Jackson asked me, you know, as a man, what are you doing to stop, you know, put, you know, prevent violence? I thought, wow, he's just, he's hit something there big. And, the, you know, in the past that, you know, yeah, ha- have I been the defensive man? Yeah, I have been, but I've learned stamina. I think we need, it's like, we need, we need more stamina from white people around racism. We need yeah. more stamina from men around around sexism, um, right. and I think that that is so that is key to do that. You know, key to helping men. So I think personalizing it. You know, I, I've met far too many mothers and fathers who have lost sons and daughters to to violence, and I I don't want you to be that person. You know, I'll say I, I don't want anybody else to be that person. Violence is preventable. It's not inevitable. We can we can make a difference. You know, it, this is uh, making me really think, Graham, about. Um, how the bystander conversation can really help all of us think about um, accountability for people using violence and the way we talk about it and also reducing blame that's often put on on survivors. Because, you know, part of, you know, having this bystander lens is to ask the question, if you're talking about domestic abuse situation, this conversation is who, who, who's intervened with him in his friend and family group? You know, what does that look like? Just by asking that question. Mm -hmm. So even if you're not in that active bystander role, but you're in a professional and you're maybe processing a case or discussing it, that we will talk and we'll say for together about just who's what's that intervention with it? What's what's been the interventions? And by mapping those interventions, you often see there's been too few or they haven't been as successful or they've made things worse. And I think if if you expand that conversation away from just with a police called or a uh, order of protection put in place to to well who in his friend group has spoken to him or who is dad where's his dad stance and you know where's his his his, his friend stance that it it shifts everybody's mindset to remembering that there's all these possibilities out there and that if if the answer is no we don't know or nobody said anything or they're all watching or this happened in front you'll hear that story what happened right in front of everybody and nobody stepped in then that helps you have a, a, a better understanding why he's so emboldened mm-hmm. and why she feels so alone because she feels her pain's invisible, her the hurt is invisible. So I think we all need to really up our game around the way we think, not only act as bystanders, but think about this yeah. bystander intervention. It's, it's so true. You know, you know, if you if you're a victim of abuse and you see passive bystanders, the research says that your trauma will be compounded by the fact nobody helped you. Yeah. Right, and that's clear. But here's the thing: even after an incident, somebody coming up to you, as I said before, and saying, "Hey, I saw what happened to you. That wasn't your fault. What do you want to do?" Yeah, that can actually lead to lead to a more fulfilling school life, if it's bullying or abuse or workplace life as well. So it's mm-hmm. so important that you know, and you know, I, I often get told by by in, in feedback, you know, just you know, thanking you, know, thank you for you know, giving me the, the the awareness that I can make a difference. Thank you for helping me overcome some of the challenges to intervention. You know, you know, the world is full of moral rebels and waiting. You know, that you know, people want to, you know, you know, if I ask a room of 100 people, raise your hands if you would like to think you would do something. 
everybody wants to they put their hands up, but in reality, people are, are often doing nothing and feeling really guilty. Right. They don't they don't help. So yeah. we need to give them the tools to be good friends, good colleagues. I have to I have to up the ante a little bit here because because I understand that you know we're trying to create these ecosystems of support around people, right? For good behaviors, for safe, connected, good behaviors. I actually believe that professionals have a responsibility to understand how the ecosystem has supported that perpetrator and made that perpetrator feel that their behaviors are okay. And that includes pastors, mental health professionals, you know, law enforcement officers who may misidentify that person and, and, you know, pat them on the back and drive them around the, the block and then dump them back at home. Those are all supportive actives of that person's perpetration that basically acknowledges his legitimacy or their legitimacy in doing those behaviors. And we need to look at that and we need to acknowledge that in order for us to understand how emboldened they feel, how, how deeply these behaviors have been embedded in their sense of, I have a right to do this. Mm -hmm. This is part of my role as a man or this is part of my role as, you know, my authority, I get to do this. And we know that the more that somebody behaves that way and doesn't have any pushback, the more they feel that they're entitled to those behaviors. You know, it's, it's making me think about, you know, I, I do this exercise where um, I ask people to think about what would somebody who's been abusive do if they were taking responsibility for the abuse to get them to think about patterns of behavior. You know, I, I, so I get violent, I get, I, I drink and I get violent with my partner in front of my kids. Well, if I'm a responsible human being, I look at my drinking, I stop drinking until I figure out what's going on. I say I was wrong. I, I don't control people's reactions. You know what I mean? That, that by doing that, you realize that the abuse is so much more than the actual violence. It's mm-hmm. the everything that comes afterwards. Right. And now I'm imagining something here where you go and say, okay, so you've got you've got somebody who's arrested, and their and, and their their mom knows they're arrested. Their their father knows they're arrested. Their brother knows they're arrested. Their best friend knows they're arrested. What would we want the perfect response to be from those people? Right. You know, because I think if we can envision this these moral rebels, these sort of mm-hmm. this this like you said ecosystem or these bystander responses that that Graham you're talking so much about. One is it points out where how how horribly lacking it is right you know which i think ruth to your point is but also points the way to the things you're discussing graham or our ally guide Mm -hmm. which says wait a second you can actually we can influence and prevent violence by actually working with these other people Mm -hmm. right so you know this you know let's face it whilst there's so many inhibitors to intervention you know the standard you walk past the standard you accept that's clear you know and i think that's that's what we, we, it was, I think society needs to look at the silence. You know, you know, I've looked at violence as a public health issue for the last 11 years through my VRU work and even now. Um, and silence is the infection that keeps violence going. You know, and right. violence will continue in communities. It will evolve. It will change shape. It will, you know, escalate whatever it does until we have interruption. And, you know, COVID, the interruption for COVID just now is the vaccine and, you know, face masks and hand washing. The interruption for violence and abuse, in, in part, is the active bystander. Right. Now, why wouldn't we want to engage? You know, this, I think the CDC in America talked about 70% of violent incidents, third parties witness violent incidents. You know, so there's, there's 70% where we could activate people to say, hey, let's let's get out of here. Let's do something to stop things happening. Right. Um, well, I, I think that this has been a, a really wonderful conversation and it lands it lands directly in, you know, Safe and Together's values and mission around uh, accountability um, and change, behavior change. And I just love what you're doing. Um, what messages would you have for agencies and communities who want to get more men involved in active bystander, uh, you know, programs and understanding how to interrupt that behavior and be a, what is, what do you call it? A moral rebel? A moral, moral rebel. rebel. I and, love it. And, and he's, Graham, Graham said I was a moral, moral rebel. I'm a moral rebel. <laughs> I want that. I want a bumper sticker that says moral rebel, I you know, and, you know, and I, or put it on my mug, my coffee mug. And I, do you, is that part of your, uh, your package for, for people who, <laughs> yeah. who, who do training with you? 
<laughs> yeah, you know, I think you know it's, it's a great question, and you know it's you know you know prevention will 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 happen when we all, when we all come together. You know, different organisations and agencies, policing, education, social work, whoever that may be. And for me, you know, the you know the I think step one is is you know find the shared agenda. You know, you know, and, and the shared agenda for me is healthy relationships. I think David, you talked about that beforehand. It's about developing, it's finding that, you know, in schools, if we get if we get relationships right in schools, learning goes up. If we get relationships right in society, violence comes down. So it's I think we all share that that that, that ability to, to really promote healthy relationships. I think organizations, I remember is it Esther Sola from the US many years ago did a great TED talk and she talked about invite, not indict. How do we invite men into conversations? You know, so I think, you know, looking at ways, at, at, at campaigns, at strategies that bring men into the, the conversation as a solution. And when you do that, you force self-inspection. You know, the, you know, the bystander approach removes the victim-perpetrator binary, and, and, we're all, we're, and we're all friends. We're all, right. But what you do when you have that conversation is you, you force men to self-inspect their, their own behaviours and attitudes. So that, I think that as well. So seeing men as a big part of the solution is really, really important. And, and meet men, you know, I think meet men, men where they're at, you know, the, I've met so many great people over the years. I met Tony Porter from a call to men in the U S and I asked him the question, I think it was 2012 when I was early days of my work. And I said, what's the best way to engage men? And he said, Graham, meet them where they're at, you know, and, and, you know, the, the, there will be mistakes. There will be pushback. I need to find ways of understanding where that's coming from. You know, 8,000 years of patriarchy ain't, ain't going to be dealt overnight. We need to really start to think about, you know, the conditioning that, that boys and men have gone through for generations. It doesn't excuse their behaviour. I think that. So I think, you know, meet men with a rat as well. So that, that, that's, that's some things for me. Um, and this, this last question may be um, redundant, but do you have anything else specific that you want to say to men who might be listening you know, that that's a direct kind of statement or suggestion or yeah. uh, guidance. I'm a great believer in doing the knowledge. You know, it's what I think was it John Wooden, one of your great American basketball coaches said, it's what you learn after you think you know what all that counts. You know, you know, go out there and learn about this stuff. Don't, you know, you know, and 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 be uncomfortable. That's good. You know, and handle the reality. What what was that film? The film with um, Tom Cruise and Jack Nicholson, a few uh, good men. You can't handle the truth. The yeah, famous right. line. Yeah, the truth. You can't handle the truth. <laughs> yeah. and, 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 and I think, you know, the, the, you know, the truth for me is the, the, is the reality of men's violence. Mm. And, you know, we're not, we're not, you know, saying that all men are violent, but a lot of men, so a lot of women are scared of men. And we should be ashamed of that as, as, as men just... Now. And a lot and of men, men are afraid of men too. That, that's spot on as well. I think, you, know, and I think, you know, men and women, we share a common enemy and it's abusive, violent men. So why wouldn't we want to get involved in this work? And, you know, and I think, you know, so speak to other men in your peer groups, find your friends and don't be surprised when people actually respect you talking about it. You know, most men want, most men are deeply disturbed with what they're seeing research suggests that the vast majority of men are against abuse and violence. And also, men will respect other men if they speak up and challenge other men's behavior. So, you know, find your friends and do that by, you know, talking about a case in the news, talking about something on the television, you know, you know, don't assume that people around you know what you think, talk about it. Right. And when you do that, you, you do that, you, you become an ally to survivors and victims, but an ally also to other bystand, active bystanders. And a, and a moral rebel. Let's be clear about a that. Moral, moral rebel. rebel. So, will you um, give our listeners some information about how to reach you, about your training programs, anything else that will help them connect with you? Yeah, you know, I, I can be found on on Twitter. Um, like most people nowadays, um, at Graham underscore Golden. Uh, but I'll send you some information. My website, GrahamGolden.com, has got some. It's got an email address that you can contact me with. That is a a website I need, need to do a little bit of updating and things have been so busy this last year that that's fell by the way a little bit. Um, yeah, just, you know, the website's got my email address and reach out, contact me and you'll get an idea of what I do, trainings I deliver, where I work. Um, and we can, we can all make a difference. And even though we're speaking to you in Scotland, I believe now you're, you're working all over the world. You're working in, in the UK, you're working in the United States at least. And so just to really kind of make people aware that you're, you're, you're available for connection, support, and engagement from all over the world. I would imagine. Yeah, the world's a small place just now, you know. And I think we can we can connect. I, I do a lot of online work. I do 
I'm doing some work in the Caribbean just now with the United Nations, UN Women doing some work. I've got some interest in Chile for all places doing with, with police, the law enforcement across there doing bystander work. So yeah, you know, open for any discussion. All right. It's wonderful. Well, Graham, thank, thank you, you so much. much. And, and thank you for being here. And, and we're going to wrap up here. And just to remind people that in addition to Graham's uh, uh, resources, that our ally guide and our Choose to Change Toolkit, which are up on our website and are free, are, are really great resources in the same space. You know, mm-hmm. how to talk to survivors if, if you know somebody who's or you're worried they're being abused and then how to create safe, strong networks um, for men who are trying to not be violent. So just just there's, you know, we're really trying to create this conversation and mm-hmm. and, and make this happen. So so we're, we're wrapping up another show. Yeah. I always get so energized by doing this and I, I don't like you super excited, but I, I, <laughs> I think I energized. <laughs> it's like now it's labeled in my mind as Americanism and, you know, and. Um, if you want to see our resources, you can go to our website, which is safeintogetherinstitute.com or academy.safeintogetherinstitute.com for trainings. And I, I do believe that we still have the Officer Involved Domestic Violence Summit up, which, uh, which Graham uh, presented at, so you could see some of his work there as well. Um, and I'm Ruth Stearns Mandel, the e-learning communications and strategic relationship manager at Safe and Together Institute. And I'm David Mandel, uh, the executive director of the Safe and Together Institute. And if you like this podcast, please share it. Yes. Follow us. At, we're on Twitter. I, I gave my handle earlier. So there's at Safe and Together is our, our Institute Twitter uh, feed. Mine is at David G. Mandel. Mine's at Survivor Strong 3. And, and we're out. We're out.